Now we're going to get, in, get into our teaching. Uh, we are in part 20 of our King series. So if you uh, are new or you haven't been around for the last bit, uh, we have spent the bulk of this year so far studying different Old Testament kings. Uh, we've studied some really great kings, we've studied some not-so-great kings, and we've studied some very complicated kings. And one thing that Pastor Lance has told us throughout this series is that we're, we're studying these kings, and as we're doing that, we're asking the question, who is the king of your life? Who is the king of your life? Because ultimately, whoever it is that we're following, whoever it is that we are giving influence and authority in our lives, that is going to make a huge amount of difference in ways big and small. That is going to impact our lives. So it's worth all of us asking that question. Who is the king of my life? And it's important to recognize also that as we study these Old Testament kings... The point is not, oh, well, this guy was a good king, let's be like him. Or, oh, this guy was a bad king, let's not be like him. We're not moralizing these people's lives. Instead, what we're doing is we're saying, how can these kings point us to Jesus? And how can these kings point us to our true king and help us to see what does it mean for us to follow our true king, Jesus? So that's what we're trying to do. And, and this morning we're studying a king named Josiah. And kings, as far as kings go, Josiah was a pretty great king. In fact, uh, listen to what it says in 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 25 about Josiah. It says this, Before him there was no king like him, who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses. Nor did any like him arise after him. All right. That sounds pretty good, right? Josiah was a great king in a lot of different regards, and and we're going to see that here in just a minute. But I'll tell you what's interesting about Josiah is if there was ever a king who was set up to fail, it was him. Uh, Josiah came to power at a time when Judah was just absolutely broken by decades of bad leadership. In fact, so last week, if you were here, you heard Pastor Parnell teach us about Josiah's grandfather, Manasseh, which, by the way, who else left church in a good mood last week after Pastor Parnell? My goodness, that was, that was fantastic. I, I told him this week, I said, I've just never seen a preacher with that kind of footwork. I'm just like, I'm, that is the extent to which I'm going to imitate it, otherwise I'm going to fall. Like... Unbelievable. Anyway, if you missed it, listen to the podcast. You'll be encouraged. But Manasseh was really jacked up. He was a bad guy. And he turned to the Lord later in his life. And he, and he repented. And we praise God for that. But man, did he lead Israel into all sorts of unhealth and, and pagan worship and, and false worship. And after he died, his son Amon came to the throne. And Amon was as wicked, if not worse, than his father Manasseh. And he was so wicked that his servants gathered together, rebelled against him, and killed him after he'd been in power for only two years. And you thought you came from dysfunction, right? And that is the situation under which Josiah took power. So if you have a Bible or a Bible-equipped flat screen, I want to invite you to go to 2 Chronicles chapter 34. Check in 2 Chronicles chapter 34. There's a Bible underneath the seat in front of you, if that would be of use to you. And if you use that Bible, we're going to be on page 385. 385, 2 Chronicles chapter 34. And, and here's what... I, I, I want to give you the, the fill-in-the-blank here, if you have the app or if you have the handout you received when you walked in. Because here's what we're going to see from from Josiah. 
Josiah is a person, is a king with a soft and attentive heart. He is attentive towards God. And because of that, he is able to lead major change. And that is, that is your feeling. It's this. An attentive heart can lead to major change. An attentive heart can lead to major change. So here we go. Josiah chapter, excuse me, second Chronicles chapter 34 verse one. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. Real quick, I don't know what your life was like when you were eight years old, but I was thinking about this, like my skills at age eight included things like setting the table before dinner, Super Mario Brothers 2, also an area of strength for me, Fighting with my brother, that came pretty natural to me, right? Like, that was sort of the extent of things that I was good at, right? Like, I think if you had talked to eight-year-old me and said, Hey, how do you feel about leading a whole nation? Do you feel equipped for that? I think I would have said, you know, I, that just feels a little bit outside of my skill set at the moment, right? And yet here's Josiah, age eight, taking the throne in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And he walked in the ways of David, his father. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, just 16 years of age, he began to seek the God of David, his father. This word seek is significant because it implies worship and service. That he began to worship the God of David, his father, the God of Israel, and he began to serve the God of Israel. And here, listen, this is something that that we all know just from being human. This isn't just a Christian thing. This is a human thing that you and I, we seek the things that we love, right? We seek the things that we love. You don't have to be reminded. You don't have to be told to seek out the things that you love. We all do that automatically. That's why the Bible talks so much, especially in the Psalms about this idea of seeking the Lord. And it's always connected To joy, let those who seek the Lord rejoice, Psalm 105 says. And you and I, we we are people who are motivated by our love. So God invites us to seek Him. And the invitation to seek Him, it's an invitation to love Him. That the Christian life, it begins and ends with love. Is there discipline involved? Sure, there is. But it doesn't start with discipline. It begins and ends with love. And that was true for him. That was true for Josiah. We'll keep reading. Well, he was yet a boy. He began to seek the God of David, his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the ashram and the carved and metal images. These are just the different symbols of pagan worship. These artifacts that were, that were present in the temple and in all around Judah because the people were worshiping false gods. And in the twelfth year of his reign, four years after he starts seeking the Lord, he says, we need to get rid of these things. And just as I was reflecting on this passage this week and, and last week, this just thought kept coming to mind. As I'm like, okay, eight years in, he starts seeking the Lord. Twelve years in, he says, we got to get rid of all the pagan idols. That's a four-year period of time in between those things. That's a long time for something that feels pretty basic. Like, we're going to seek the Lord. God's probably not that excited about having all these pagan idols around. But it took Josiah four years to figure that out. 
And here's why I bring that up. I bring that up not to make fun of Josiah or try to suggest that I or anyone else would do any better, but just for this simple point that I think we need to remember. And that is that discipleship takes time. Discipleship takes time. Apprenticeship apprenticeship to Jesus takes time. Spiritual maturity takes time. Whatever you want to call it, I would use those terms more or less interchangeably. I mean, there's a lot of things we can microwave. There's a lot of things we can fast track. There's a lot of things we can order up in four seconds on our phone. But spiritual maturity is not like that. To, To get our minds so that we're influenced by the things of God and not just our own selfishness or other ideas, it just takes time. I love the great pastor and author Eugene Peterson. Uh, his book on discipleship, I love the title. He, he called it a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. And that's what a life of faith is. That as we walk with Jesus, slowly but surely over time, we begin to mature. We begin to grow like Him. But here's the thing. It takes time, but it's not just time. Right? Like, you don't become mature just as a product of the passage of time. You get older. I get older, but we don't become more mature because it takes intentionality as well. One of my favorite preachers, he says this. He says that there's a myth. The myth says that experience makes you wiser. He says that is absolutely not true because you can have all sorts of experience and change nothing. And you are no wiser. He says that for you and I, that it's evaluated experience that makes us wiser. Evaluated experience makes us wiser. So in the same way, if we're going to become wiser in the things of God, it takes evaluated experience to look at our lives and say, okay, what do I need to do to better hear the voice of God? What do I need to do to better walk in obedience? What do I need to do to better be the person that God wants me to be? It takes time. And it takes intentionality. And perhaps most importantly of all, I need us to understand that there is grace for us in that process. Right? See, so many, it's so easy to be hard on ourselves. It's so easy for anything like me. You just see that maybe you just haven't made as much progress in an area of your life that you wish you had, or you have a conversation, or you have an interaction that just reveals, like this happens to me, where just I'll, I'll have a conversation with somebody, and it just reveals just, just pride and pettiness in my heart, and I'm just like, ugh, that's just gross, right? And it's easy to get really down on ourselves. And listen, I'm not saying we don't take those things seriously, because I think, I think we should, but we need to have grace for us. To recognize that as we walk with Jesus, the Holy Spirit is faithful to do that slow and steady but sure work of refining us and molding us into the character and competency of Jesus. And I love the words of C.S. Lewis. He says that where the will to walk is there, God is pleased even with our stumbles. That when the will to walk is there, God is pleased even with with our stumbles. It takes time. It takes intentionality. And there is grace for us in the process. So in the next several verses, it goes on to talk about all of the different idols and and, and pagan things that were were rooted out by Josiah all over the land of Judah. And in fact, in the, the second Kings version of this story, it takes 22 verses going into great detail to talk about all of the stuff that Josiah got rid of because they were symbols of pagan Worship. And now we'll pick up the story again in verse 8, because having cleansed a lot of the land, Josiah turns his attention to the temple. It says this, 
Now in the 18th year of his reign, when he had cleansed the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Maaseah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. Just a reminder to you, what do you, what's the most important thing if you have to read weird Old Testament names in public? Confidence. Confidence is number one. Accuracy is number two. All right, moving on. Where was I? Here we go. They came to Hilkiah, the high priest, and gave him the money that had been brought into the house of God, which the Levites, the keepers of the threshold, had collected from Manasseh and Ephraim and from all the remnant of Israel and from Judah and Benjamin and from the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And they gave it to the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord. And the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord gave it for repairing and restoring the house. So what's going on here? Resources are being devoted now to repairing the temple. The temple, which was sort of the the central place where God was meant to be worshipped, had now been been given over to pagan worship and and the worship of false gods. And now work is being done to restore and renovate the temple so that God could be worshipped there again. Work continues to be done. We'll skip down to verse 14. It says this, It says, While they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord... Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. Shaphan brought the book to the king and further reported to the king, All that was committed to your servants they are doing. They have emptied out the money that was found in the house of the Lord and given it into the hands hand of the overseers and the workmen. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it before the king. So Hilkiah the high priest finds this book. Now we would call it a scroll. And scholars are pretty much unanimous in saying that this scroll was almost certainly part of what we now know as the biblical book of Deuteronomy. So it was part of the law of Moses. And for years and years, this scroll would be brought out regularly in temple worship and and read from in the presence of all the people. But because the people had been given over to, to pagan worship for so long, this scroll had almost certainly literally been gathering dust here in the temple. But as they're repairing it, they find this scroll. And Hilkiah gives it to Shaphan. And Shaphan goes to the king... And he says to Josiah, hey, uh, king, want you to know things are going great in the temple right now. We got all the money where it needs to be. We've hired the right workers. They're all getting paid properly. They're all doing their jobs. Things are moving along. Fantastic. You're going to really love the work that's being done. And oh, by the way, we found a book and you might want to hear what it says. And in my opinion, this next verse is the most important verse of the entire story and shows us so much about this king. So Shaphan reads the book. And it says this, verse 19. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. That that is a symbol of grief, of conviction, of repentance, 
Because see, what happened was the king, he had no idea. He, he'd been seeking the Lord, but he, he didn't have the law. He had no idea what God required of his people. And he had no idea of God's judgment for false worship. So now what happens is he comes and he hears the law and it lays him bare. It lays his people bare. And this is the king. If there was anybody who could have made excuses, if there's anybody who said, listen, I don't want to hear it. I'm the king. You get out of here. If there's anybody who could have ignored it, it was Josiah, but that's not what he does. What does he do? He is cut to the heart. And he is immediately drawn into repentance, grief, conviction. Now I'm going to read just a couple more verses and then I want to make some some quick observations about this part of the story. But verse 20. And the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahakam, and the son of Shaphan, Abdon the son of Micah, Shaphan the secretary, and Isaiah the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me, for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. So he gathers up his people and he says, hey, I need you to go inquire of the Lord for me. And what happens in the next passage is they go to a, a woman, a prophetess named Huldah, and, and she helps them understand what it is that they just heard. And we'll get to that in a second. But, but two quick things about Josiah here that I think are so important for us to recognize. Uh, number one, I mentioned this a moment ago, uh, Josiah, Josiah just gets absolutely laid bare and exposed by God's word. And what does he do? He owns it. He owns it. Listen, when we get convicted by the Word of God, it is easy to make excuses, right? It is easy to shift blame. It is easy to try to shift attention to parts of God's Word that maybe talk about stuff that we don't struggle with. I love passages of the Bible that talk about sins I don't struggle with. I'll talk about those all day long, right? But it's the ones that deal with my stuff that is not maybe not as fun for me to read, right? It's easy to do that. It's easy to read God's Word to see what it has to say to us and to say things like, well, no, 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 my situ- in my situation, this doesn't apply, which that's basically code for here's why the rules of common sense don't apply to me, right? Like, we do this sort of stuff. We make excuses. We say this doesn't apply to us. We say, well, because of this, this, and this, I don't need to deal with this, right? We do that. I do this, right? But Josiah doesn't do that. He allows himself to be convicted and corrected. He has a soft and attentive heart. I, I said a moment ago that discipleship is a long Process. And none of us have arrived. We're all in process, right? But critical to the process of discipleship is a soft and attentive heart. I don't know how we grow in the character and competency of Jesus without it. In fact, it makes me think of just a famous passage in the New Testament. 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 16. Maybe you've heard it. it. It tells us this. It says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And I think as we look into our own hearts, as I look into my own heart and just ask the question, do I have a soft heart towards God? Those verses give us sort of a lens through which we can evaluate that. Just to to take those four words from verse 16, that the Word of God is useful for teaching. Am I willing to be taught? Am I willing to be taught? 
by God's word. For, for reproof. Like, I don't, I don't know that I've ever used that word except when quoting 2 Timothy 3.16. It's, it's not a word that we use a lot, but it has to do with this idea of, of blame or disapproval. Can I accept the fact? That as I read God's Word, it's going to expose areas of disobedience in my life. And can I accept that without defensiveness or excuse-making? Right? For correction. Am I open to the fact that just as the Bible might point out my, my error, that it's going to lead me in correction to show me what I need to do to walk in obedience? Am I open? Do I have a humble heart that is willing to be corrected and then training in righteousness? Am I willing to be trained up? Do I know that I don't have it all together? Do, do I know that to, to, to experience all that God has for me, there, there's room for me to grow? I don't have this all figured out. I, I think those words help us to evaluate, do I have a soft and attentive heart? Josiah did, and it made all the difference. And, and one thing I love about him as well is that Josiah starts with himself. <laughs> it would have been really easy for him to say, hey, y'all need to get your act together. In light of what we just read. But he said, no, no, we, we need to figure this out together. And it's got to start with me. I'll, I'll talk to a lot of you at, you know, different times about, you know, different things. And a lot of you will come up and, you know, you'll say things after weekends, after sermons and everything else. And, and you all are, are super nice and you're all way nicer than I, I deserve, that's for sure. And, and you all are so nice in just the things that you say. But, but every now and then I'll get comments like this, and this is 100% true. This has happened on a few different occasions and it just breaks my heart. We'll have someone come up to me and they'll say, uh, hey, uh, great sermon now, Pastor Brian. They really needed to hear that. On my outside, I just sort of nod. On my inside, I'm going, there is no they. It's only we. It's all of us. It's me. What? Like, I, I, I preach this stuff not because you all need it, but because we all need it, because I need it too. There is no they. It's easy. Come on, there is no they. We're all in this together. And if all I'm doing, listen, come on, if I'm reading God's Word and all I care about is what it means for my family members, what it means for my friends, what it means for my coworkers, what it means for all y'all, nothing's ever going to change. If I'm listening to sermons for what it means to the people sitting next to me, nothing's going to change. I need to know it's got to start with me. Right. I, I, need to, I, need to care, I need to care more about the, the wickedness and darkness in my own heart than what I see anywhere else. I need to know, God, what do you have for me? It's got to start here, right? And I guess it's, it's easy to pay attention to, to other stuff. And it's hard to have the humility to say, God, I, I need to repent. I need to, I need to grow. But it's so critical. There is no they. It's only, in the church, it's only we. It's only we. We're all in this together. And the second thing that he does is that he does the work to try to determine if what he is hearing in God's Word is accurate. He gathers up his people together and he says, Hey, I need you to go inquire of the Lord for me, which means I need you, need you to go talk to somebody who knows this stuff better than us and have, have her help us figure out if we've got this correct. And as I mentioned, they go to this prophetess Hulda and she basically says to him, Yes, you have understood this correctly. God is really, really, really mad. This is not going to go well for you. And they go back and it's like, Fantastic. All right. But here's the thing, and, and this, is the other, this is the other thing it makes me think about, is that we need to recognize that Bible reading, Bible interpreting, 
Bible applying. That is a skill. And I don't know about you, skills don't just develop on accident, right? Like any skill, reading the Bible, interpreting the Bible, applying the Bible, it's a skill and it takes some work and some effort on our part. Now what I love about the Bible is that is there's a simplicity to a lot of it that, 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 that you can understand the core of the gospel. You don't need a bunch of training to understand the, the core of the gospel. Virtually anyone can understand that. But then that also that we hold these sort of two things in tension. That, that, that number one, we fully affirm and believe in what is called the doctrine of illumination. That, that is you and I, we sit, whether you're sitting in your room or you're sitting at church or you're just this last week, I'm sitting on an airplane reading Colossians 3. That is we sit and read the word that the Holy Spirit illuminates the text to help us understand its meaning. It's the doctrine of illumination. In fact, a great verse to pray before you read the Bible. Psalm 119, verse 18. Open my eyes, then I may behold wonderful things out of your law. Right? Open my eyes. Holy Spirit, illuminate what I'm about to read. So we believe in the doctrine of illumination. While at the same time, we believe that Bible reading is a skill. That, that we would do well to develop. That's why we teach a class. Pastor Matt teaches it. I help out a little bit. We teach a class every semester here at Bridgeway called How to Read Your Bible. And we talk about context. And we talk about history. And we talk about genre. And we talk about how to interpret. Right? And we live in such an amazing time. We have access to so many resources. It's some, we don't have to just say, hey, go ask the prophetess. See if we're getting this right. right? We have access to so many resources. The doctrine of illumination is absolutely true, but at the same time, it's a skill. That's why a good study Bible is important. That's why learning and reading good books and understanding how do I read and interpret and apply this is so important. Josiah does both of those things. He owns what God's Word says to him, and he does the work to make sure he's understanding it properly. So, Josiah's people go and they visit Huldah, and she says, yep, God's mad, it's not going to go well for you. But then look what she says in verse 26. She says... But to the king of Judah, that's Josiah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants, and you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord." Behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see the disaster that I will bring upon this place and its inhabitants. And they brought word back to the king. So the prophetess says, Josiah, because of your soft heart, you are going to be spared this destruction. You're going to be dead and gone before this happens. And indeed, that is true. Josiah dies in 609 B.C. and the big Babylonian invasion and, 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 and the beginning of the exile doesn't start till 586 B.C. And what happens next tells us something about the character of Josiah because let's just be real honest here. It would have been easy for him to say, oh, whew, fantastic. Judgment's not coming till after I'm dead. Not my problem, right? But, it, but he doesn't do it. He continues to lead his people in the worship of God. Because whether whatever's coming, he knows that worship is always worth it. That whatever is coming, he knows that obedience is always worth it. Whatever, whatever is coming, walking closely with God is always worth it. And that's not the means to some other end, that that is the end in and of itself. And then look what happens. 
Verse 29. Then the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites, all the people, both great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord, to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul and to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. I love that about Josiah. He gets up in front of the people and he says, start with me. If we're going to renew the covenant, if we're going to be a faithful people, it's got to start with me. That is such a powerful, by the way, just leadership principle. We don't reproduce what we say. We reproduce who we are. And Josiah says, this is who I'm going to be as I seek to lead you, my people. Verse 32. Then he made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin join in it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations from all the territory that belonged to the people of Israel. And all who were present in Israel served the Lord their God. All his days they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. I think it's hard for us, 2,600 years later and half a world away, to fully appreciate what an absolutely profound moment this was in Israel's history. That these people who quite literally, their entire lifetime, they had known nothing but pagan and false worship. That their entire lifetime, they maybe knew something of their history, that there was a God in Israel who brought them out of slavery and everything else, but like those memories were probably getting fuzzy because all they knew were the false gods of the surrounding cultures. And here they are, all together, saying we're all in with our God. It's an unbelievable moment. It's an unbelievable moment. And it just, again, it tells us so much about the character of Josiah, because how easy it would, it, would it have been for him just to maintain the status quo. Because I don't know if you know this, maintaining the status quo is easy. Leading change is hard. Even leading good change is hard. Like, people don't like you when you want to change stuff, right? But Josiah had the courage and the conviction to say, no, no, this is who we need to be. We're not going to be people who are giving ourselves to false worship. We're going to be people who, who worship the one true God, the God of Israel. And he had the courage and the conviction to lead the change. And then the other thing about him is his leadership was so obviously not about him. Right? He as a leader was not saying, hey, everybody, look at me. Look how awesome I am. You know, give all of yourselves to me. He, he was a leader who pointed people to the real leader. He was a king who pointed people to their true king. And that's just another sort of leadership principle question for us to ask. And virtually all of us lead in some capacity, maybe in your family, maybe here at church, maybe in a business. But if, if people are following you, where are you taking them? <laughs> if people are looking at you as a leader, who are you pointing them to? Does it begin and end with you, or are you pointing them to their king? And that's what Josiah did. That's what Josiah did. And then chapter 35, we're not going to read a whole lot of this next section. But if you're following along in your Bible, you see the headline, Josiah keeps the Passover. And what we would see if we read these next verses 
is Josiah leads the people in celebrating the Passover down to the exact specifications of what was written out in the Mosaic Law. He says, we are going to be people who worship God and worship Him rightly. And what happens is just huge numbers of people come together. It says there were thousands of animals involved. Huge numbers of people come together and they celebrate the Passover, remembering God's faithfulness to their ancestors. And once again, 2,600 years later, half a world away, I think it's hard for us to fully appreciate what an amazing moment this must have been. This was a turning point in Israel's history as they celebrated the Passover together. In fact, if you want to skip all the way to verse 18, it says this, that no Passover like it had been kept in Israel since the days of Samuel the prophet. None of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as was kept by Josiah. And the priests and the Levites and all Judah and Israel who were present and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, in the 18th year of the reign of Josiah, this Passover was kept. It was an amazing moment. An amazing moment. Decades of false worship put in the past. As this people say, we're all in. We're going to remember the faithfulness of our God and we're going to follow Him. And if I can just be honest with you, that is how I want this story to end. Or maybe like one or two more verses that say something like, and Josiah continued to lead his people and they worshipped and followed Yahweh, obeying all of his commandments and statutes and everything was great in... in, in, That's not really the kind of language you find in 2 Chronicles, but you get what I'm saying. Everything was great in Judah and then Josiah died at a ripe old age. Next chapter. And for 13 years, it looks like that's the story that we're going to get. Because it says that Josiah reigned for 31 years and... This was only in year 18. For 13 years, that's what happens. But then that's not the end of the story. Chapter 35, verse 20. After this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, went up to fight at Carchemish on the Euphrates, and Josiah went out to meet him. No, Josiah, do not go out and meet him. This is not going to go well for you. I added that part in case you're not following along. That's not in the text. Verse 21. But he sent envoys to him, saying, What have we to do with each other, king of Judah? I am not coming against you this day, but against the house with which I am at war. And God has commanded me... To hurry. Here, it's one of these few spots in the Old Testament where we see this is a pagan king speaking for God. God speaking through a pagan king. He goes on, cease opposing God who is with me, lest he destroy you. Nevertheless, Josiah did not turn away from him, but disguised himself in order to fight with him. This is not going to go well. He did not listen to the words of Necho from the mouth of God, but came to fight in the plain of Megiddo. And the archers shot King Josiah. And the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I am badly wounded. So his servants took him out of the chariot and carried him in his second chariot and brought him to Jerusalem. And he died and was buried in the tombs of his fathers. All Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Jeremiah also uttered a lament for Josiah, and all the singing men and singing women have spoken of Josiah in their laments to this day. They made these a rule in Israel. Behold, they are written in the laments. It's a tragic end to an extraordinary life. 
And we don't really know why exactly Josiah was so fixated on going out and fighting this battle. If you look at sort of the, the geopolitics at the, at the time, I mean, the, the Egyptians were going to help the Assyrians, and, and Josiah, for reasons we aren't going to get into, really did not like the Assyrians, so maybe he wanted to stop that from going on. Maybe. That kind of makes sense. The bottom line is we don't really know for sure. The Bible doesn't tell us. But it sure does seem like the Bible tells us that there was a bigger thing going on here. And that is that for reasons we don't fully understand, Josiah had stopped listening. That Josiah, whose heart was so attentive, whose heart was so soft to the things of God, he just got so fixated on this idea of going out and fighting this battle that he stopped listening to the voice of God. And let's just be real honest here. It's really, really easy to stop listening. It's easy to stop listening to wise counsel. It's easy to stop listening to God's Word. It's easy to stop listening to God's voice. And again, let's just be honest here. It is especially easy, if you're in one of these two categories, it is, in my opinion, especially easy. Number one, if you've experienced a lot of success and or you have a lot of power. Right? Because if we have a lot of success... We start to think that, man, I've got life figured out. I don't need to keep listening. I don't need to to consider what others have to say. I've been successful. I know what I'm doing. And consciously or subconsciously, we stop listening. We stop growing. Or we have a bunch of power. We're like, no, I'm the one who makes sure other people grow. I don't need to be listening anymore. So if you've had a lot of success or you've had a lot of power, you've got to be extra careful that that you have a humble and soft heart towards God. And then another thing is this, is it's easy to stop listening if you've just lived a lot of life. Which that is a nicer way of saying something else. And I'm going to let you all figure out what that something else is. But the fact of the matter is, the more life you live, the easier it is to start to think that you've got life figured out and that you don't need to be open to new things. You don't need to be open to what God's doing in your life. You don't need to be open to what God's calling you to do. I just know, as somebody who's in now my late 30s, I just my natural response is to be more closed off and less open to God than I was in my 20s. That's just a fact. So I need to be mindful of, am I staying open to the voice of God? Am I staying open to the fact I was having a conversation the other day with, with one of my colleagues? Like, I just, just want to pay attention. Is this just a, a weird situation I'm in, or is God doing something here? Right? Like, I just want to be open to these sorts of things. And it's easy, if you've had a lot of power, had a lot of success, or lived a lot of life, to stop listening. And here's the deal. When we stop listening, I think, I think we're at risk of a lot of things, but I'll just, I'll just name two that I see all the time. Number one, we stop listening to the voice of God. We stop being open to what God is calling us to. It is so, so easy to become cynical. It is so, so easy to become cynical and just begin to look at life just through this cynical lens where sort of everything is lame, everything is broken, nothing matters, I don't need to engage because nothing's ever going to be better. Anyway, so easy to be cynical. And then sort of cynical's like evil cousin, as if cynicism's not easy enough. Cynicism's evil cousin is anger. Where we're just angry. We've stopped listening We've stopped learning. We've stopped growing. We're not curious about the world. We're not seeking to understand what God is doing. We're not seeking to participate in it. So what do we do? We just become angry. We just become angry. And listen, there's a lot of people in our world who are selling cynicism and who are selling anger. And if we're not attentive to the voice of God, we're going to buy what they're selling and we do that to our peril. Right? 
And it's just, I'll just tell you, this is amazing to me, is I, every now and then I'll just, I'll, I'll go to work at a coffee shop for, for a little bit before I come into the office, and, and I'll do this real, real early in the morning. So, so coffee shops are pretty quiet that early in the morning, so there's not a lot going on, and it's, it's kind of easy to ear hustle on the conversations around me, if you know what I'm saying. Like, I'm not trying to, but like, they're just there and, and they're talking. And it's just amazing to me how often I'll observe this, I'll observe groups of people, and they are not in a hurry. They're just there, and they're hanging out, and all they're doing is complaining about the world. There's no talk of how do we be part of the solution. There's no talk of, hey, what would it look like to help make things better? It's just, rah, 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 have you seen this? Have you seen that? Blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, how did this meeting even start? Hey, 6 a.m., Pete's Coffee, we're going to get together and complain about the world. Sound good? Yes, I'm there, absolutely. <laughs> if you go to one of these meetings, explain this to me. I don't understand it. But, 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 come on. And, and I say that, and I, and I, I don't, like, I'm trying to be funny about it, but I don't mean to make fun, because I think, I think that sentiment lives in all of us, where we can just get angry, and we can be cynical. And that happens when we're not open to the voice of God and instead we're just buying the anger and the cynicism that is so prevalent in our culture. But I want to tell you about an alternative to that. And in telling you about the alternative, I want to tell you about a friend of mine named Dale. You might know Dale. He and his wife have been a part of Bridgeway for, for a long time. D- Dale's a good friend. Uh, we just had a surprise birthday party uh, for Dale's 80th birthday. It was, it was great. And and Dale and I, and then another guy on our, our team who's a little younger than me, uh, we meet for breakfast about once a month, and I, and I love it. We have such a, such a great time together. We talk theology, and we read books together, and it's awesome. Uh, he says he loves it because we're young. We say we love it because he's old, and it's just it's fantastic. We have, we have a great time. And, and Dale said something to me that I just think is so powerful. Here's a guy. He was a pastor for decades. He still does pastoral counseling here, here at Bridgeway on sort of a volunteer basis. He knows the Bible inside, outside, and upside down. He's read all the books. He's given all the sermons. He's done just about everything. If there was ever a guy who could say, you know what, I've got life figured out, it's him. But he said this to me, and I thought it was so profound. It stuck with me ever since. He says, Brian, I want to spend my life exploring the edges of who God is. 80 years old. And he says, I want to spend my life exploring the edges of who God is. And some of you might say, wait a second, that sounds a little like new agey and weird. And it does sound a little new agey and weird, but it's not. We're saying exploring the edges. There is a playing field here of biblical truth, right? But it's us saying, we want to know all that God is. To say, and for him to say, in all these decades of following Jesus, I still don't know everything. And I want to be open to the Spirit of God. And I just wonder, what if we were a church full of people? who said, I want to explore the edges of who God is. Wouldn't that be amazing, right? So as we wrap up, <laughs> I think it's easy to look at the story of Josiah and kind of say, okay, so, so what's the application point here? I can, I can live a life of faithfulness and then uh, one mistake and I'm out and that's it? It's over, game over for me? Uh, yes, that's the application. Go in peace to love and serve. No, that's not the application, <laughs> Right? That's not the application. I mean, on, on some level, is Josiah a cautionary tale? Are there things we can, we can learn from him and the importance of continued attentiveness? Absolutely, there, there is. But ultimately, as we finish looking at Josiah, we need to remember that there was another king who came on the scene 600 years after him. And he wasn't just great. He was perfect. He didn't just seek God. He was God. He didn't just stand before the people to renew the covenant. 
He established a new covenant. His death was not the act of his disobedience, but rather it was an act of obedience. And as Josiah could not prevent the wrath of God, this king, our king Jesus, absorbed the wrath of God. And three days later, he rose from the dead. And because the grave is empty, there is grace for us in this struggle of discipleship. There is forgiveness for our failures. And there is the promise for us. Don't miss this. There is the promise for us that if we are attentive to the Spirit of God, if we are attentive to His Word, that your failures and mine do not have to have the last word. That was way better than y'all are reacting right now. That's good news. That because the grave is empty, that there is grace for us. There is hope for us that we can live as people who are attentive to the Spirit of God. And because that is true, major change is possible. Our failures don't have, the last, don't have to have the last word. I just want to invite the prayer team to come on up as we close. And for some of you here today, the one thing you need to take away from today is to get your sense of attentiveness back. And I know the struggle of just somehow, you don't try, but you just become inattentive to the voice of God. I've experienced it myself more often than I care to admit. So for some of you today, that is the one thing. You forget the rest of this stuff. You just need to get your sense of attentiveness to God's voice back. And and if you would like just someone to pray for you to that end, these men and women, they're up here. They're hoping you'll come and ask them for prayer. And they'd be honored to pray for you for that. If you came here today and you're carrying something that is entirely unrelated to anything we've talked about, they would love to pray for you for that as well. So please come see them if that would be of benefit to you. But just as we close, just my final sort of thought for all of us. May we be people who are attentive to the voice of God. May we be people who explore the edges of all that God is, knowing we don't have Him figured out. There's more for us. And may the result of that be love-motivated, Christ-honoring, joyful, hopeful obedience. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, I pray that that would be true. That we would be men and women who are attentive to Your voice, who know that there is more for us. God, save us from cynicism, from anger, and from everything else that comes from closing our voice to You. God, may we have the confidence in Your grace to know that it is safe for us to admit we don't have it all together. That You have absorbed all the wrath for our sin through Your Son Jesus on the cross. And because that is true, we can be hopeful. We can acknowledge where we have fallen short and we can do so knowing there is grace for us and there is forgiveness for us. So again, I pray that we would be a church of people who are attentive to Your voice. I pray we would explore the edges of who You are. And I pray that the result of that would that we would be a community of people who live with love-motivated, Christ-honoring, hopeful obedience for your glory and our joy. We ask these things in the powerful name of our risen King Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of your weekend.